listening to the Strategies at Work podcast for January 2019. Today's episode is titled, Living the Gospel at Work. Wise managers build organizations with people who display the fruit of the gospel of the grace of Christ. These people no longer live in the fig leaf state, seeking to gain God's acceptance through their own works, nor do they work for money, power, or fame. They work out of profound gratitude for the gift of eternal life given to them through the gospel of the grace of Christ. They obediently find and fulfill the call of God on their lives, including the workplace assignments. In every aspect of life, they live intentionally, seeking to discern and align with the will of God. Because they believe in God's sovereign purpose in all of life, they live always as to unto the Lord with gratitude because they have been made acceptable to God through the work of Christ. Consequently, their work product will be excellent because they are divinely empowered and motivated. Such workers excel and therefore enable organizations to deliver products and services on time, on scope, and on budget. Organizations that deliver such value will build stellar reputations and be industry leaders. And now Dr. Chester brings us the message titled, Living the Gospel at Work. Well, this morning we want to continue our study of the book of, uh, of Galatians, and we want to focus in on uh, Galatians chapter 1, uh, verses 10 through 12. And I've titled this, A Singular Revelation. Arguably one of the greatest challenges of first century Christianity was to deal with the, the whole issue of the gospel in Christianity in light of Judaism. In the first century, Judaism was the way to right relationship with God based on man's obedience to God's law. In other words, the way to acceptance with God in Judaism was based on fig leaves, just like Adam and Eve. In the account of the fall of man in Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve's response to the recognition of their sin was shame at their nakedness before God which meant they felt unacceptable with God. This led to an attempt to remedy their condition by covering their nakedness with garments made from fig leaves. In the creation account of Genesis chapter 1, the principle of reproduction after kind was installed in God's creation. Given this principle, and that all humans are descendants of Adam and Eve, then all humans have the same fallen nature as Adam and Eve. This means by default, there is an inherent proclivity in all humans to seek to cover their shame before God by making garments of fig leaves, metaphorically speaking, in an attempt to make themselves acceptable with God. However, one of the major lessons of the Old Testament was that no matter how hard mankind tried, mankind's attempts to obey God would never be efficacious. Whether mankind was given one law or a code of laws, Mankind could never perfectly obey God's just, righteous requirements. Recognition of this truth was the divine setup for Christ, who came to satisfy the just, righteous requirements of God, that is, to do for mankind what mankind could never do for himself, make a way for mankind to be acceptable with God. The way to acceptance with God is good news. It is the true gospel the singular gospel of salvation by grace through faith in Christ alone. The singular efficacious way to acceptance with God is through Christ. Notwithstanding this truth, mankind has historically defaulted to the way of fig leaves. Every approach to peace with God apart from the singular gospel is based on fig leaves. The most common worldviews of today, other than Christianity, secular humanism, which is atheism, Islam, 
Hinduism and Buddhism are all based on the way of fig leaves. Even the early first century understanding of the singular gospel by the church was tainted by fig leaf thinking. The first church council recorded in Acts chapter 15 focused on the issue of exactly what was the gospel. Did a person have to obey the law of Moses to be a Christian? Ultimately, the council said no, but left some vestiges of the law in their understanding of the gospel. The Lord used the Apostle Paul to purify this early confusion about the true nature of the gospel. The true gospel is based on Christ alone. There, There can be nothing added to it. It is based on divine potency. This is why it is good news. Any worldview based on fig leaves is not good news. It is bad news because it's based on human potency, the assumption that mankind can perfectly obey God's standard of righteousness, which is impossible. Until the advent of Christ, there was little understanding that there there might be another way to peace with God. That is real good news. Christ revealed the truth, the singular gospel, the only efficacious way to acceptance with God. There is no other way. There is no other good news. The singular gospel is the heart of the Pauline message in Galatians. This gospel was uniquely revealed to the, to the singular apostles of the first century, and in particular, it was revealed to Paul. Well, let's go into the exegesis here. Let me read Galatians chapter 1, verses 10 through 12. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God, or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through revelation of Jesus Christ. The way of the fig leaves is the way of man. It is the natural state, the default state, the preferred state of mankind. By nature, mankind is opposed to God's way. Therefore, as a maxim regarding the gospel, to please man is to deny the singular gospel of salvation by grace through faith in Christ alone. Paul understood the singular gospel would not be popular with mankind. Anyone preaching Paul's gospel was counterculture and was opposed by the culture. In verse 10 here, we have two parts. In the first part, Paul used the present tense to state that he was not seeking human approval in his proclamation of the gospel. In the second part, he used a first-class condition, that is the Greek first-class condition, which means the protasis is assumed true. With the imperfect tense, which is like a past tense in English, to acknowledge that in the past, the human approval, human approval was a driving motivation for Paul and his actions. Paul said, If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. See, this is the conditional sentence here. And you can see he starts it out, if I were trying to please man. And that assumes that he's making for the purpose of argument the assumption that that's true. But then he's pointing out, I would not be a servant of Christ. And then he's going to go on and explain that he's not interested in being the servant of man. He only wants to be a servant of Christ. And in regard to the gospel message... That is a mutually exclusive idea because human beings are naturally drawn to the way of the fig leaves. Certainly Saul of Tarsus, as a jealous young Jew, sought the approval of Jewish leaders of his day. This drove him to persecute Christians, 
But since his, since his life-changing encounter with Christ on the road to Damascus, he was now aware that his efforts to please man were not pleasing to God. And therefore, after his encounter with Christ, he was no longer motivated to seek human approval because he realized that human approval was opposed to God. The purpose of this verse, that is verse 10, was to respond to a potential objection to Paul's claim that, that about the singular gospel. If previously Paul was guilty of, of actions based on wrong motives, could he now be guilty of the same error? His answer was no, because his motive has changed. While he acknowledged that his prior motives were wrong, he claimed that now his motives were aligned with God. He would never allow human approval to trump divine approval. Moving on to verse 11, which reads, For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. You can see immediately he's going to continue reinforcing what he said in verse 10. The way of fig leaves is not a gospel. There is no good news when man depends on himself to gain approval with God. The singular gospel is the only gospel, and it is rooted in a singular divine revelation. The good news of deliverance from this present evil age based on the sacrificial work of Christ, see verse 4, is not a human idea. No human can ever invent or create such a theory. In the history of theoretical thought, there has never been conceived any way of gaining acceptance with God like the singular gospel. This truth is uniquely in the mind of God and is only known through divine revelation. Fallen mankind exercising common grace using his divinely communicated creative reasoning skills could never and would never posit a gospel like this. Verse 12, For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through revelation of Jesus Christ. Not only was the gospel that Paul received not of human origin, he was not even taught it by man. He wasn't even taught it by the original apostles. The singular gospel was given to Paul by singular revelation from Christ. The singular gospel did not come through the mediating hands of other humans, such as the apostle Peter. Apparently, the need for a pure understanding of the singular gospel was so great that Christ chose to reveal it directly to Paul without human mediation. Paul's experience was an example of a singularity because Paul became an agent of the gospel to others who did not have the same singular experience with Christ as he. In receiving this revelation on the road to Damascus, Paul's experience with Christ was descriptive and not prescriptive. And we'll come back to that in a moment. But first, I want to make some theological points about this text. As you can tell, three verses is not a lot of scripture to have to, to deal with, but there are theological implications here that are profound, and I don't have time to deal with all of them today. I'm just going to deal with a few. And as we get into chapter 2, we'll deal with, with some more theological implications that bear upon this text in chapter 1. But uh, let me talk about the gospel for just a moment. In the English Standard Version translation, the word gospel is first used by Jesus in reference to the gospel of the kingdom. Though Jesus' followers were trained in the Old Testament, which incidentally is generally not true of professing Christians today, the first century disciples surely struggled to understand the term gospel because they, they had no Old no Testament revelation regarding its meaning. 
The word gospel was never used in the Old Testament. Consequently, the meaning of the word gospel developed over time during and after the advent of Christ. Given the pivotal significance of the gospel, it is not surprising that the first church council was called to discuss the essence of the gospel. Namely, what does the gospel mean? You know, what is, does a person who professes to be a Christian have to obey the Old Testament law? The church leaders res, resolved the question partially, and the Apostle James proposed the following compromise. And this is from Acts chapter 15, verses 19 through 20 in the ESV. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from these things, polluting by, polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. Now, one can readily see that this proposed understanding of the gospel included some human requirements. These, <clears throat> though these requirements may be good, they were human acts required of those who embraced the gospel. And obviously the focus here is on the, the, uh, the past tense, the entrance into a saving relationship with Christ. This was a compromise. It did not reflect the purity of the gospel that Paul proclaimed in Galatians. For this reason, the church needed the clarification that Paul provided regarding the singular gospel given to Paul through the singular revelation from Christ. It's so interesting to see how the the pure and pristine is the gospel that Paul is proclaiming, salvation by grace through faith in Christ alone. That is so pure, so singular, so pristine, and yet you look at the interpretation of the gospel from the First Church Council, it's muddled with some legalism in it, which had to be obviously expunged, which tells you immediately that church councils are not necessarily perfect in their conclusions. That's a whole other topic, but it's good to observe you know, what they came to and realize that it is not exactly what Paul came to. Now let me talk about epistemology. Epistemology is the study of knowledge. It's a, top, a pop, prominent topic of philosophical discussion and you know, has been for centuries. One of the key questions of epistemology is, how does one acquire knowledge? For example, does knowledge come through reason, senses, or revelation? Also, there is, some in, is there innate knowledge in mankind or not? On this last question, that is innate knowledge, Enlightenment men, men influenced by the so-called 18th century Enlightenment, such as John Locke, believed that mankind gained knowledge through only through sensory experience. This meant there was no innate human knowledge. Uh, he proposed what's called a blank slate theory. That is, we come into the world with our, with our knowledge base blank. And now we build that knowledge base based on our experience. Now, Immanuel Kant was sympathetic to Locke's view, but believed there was knowledge that was beyond sense perception and therefore unknowable. Then Frederick Hegel came along, and he held the view that the universe was rational, that is, it could be known through senses and reason, but there, nevertheless, there was a place for revelation. In, in, in a sense, Hegel returned to the pre-enlightenment idea of revelation, which meant there, would, there was some knowledge that did not come to empiricism and rationalism. Certainly, the Apostle Paul would give a hearty amen to this idea and would have reinforced this view by sharing his own experience of receiving the singular gospel through a singular revelation directly from Christ. 
Paul's own testimony about the power of divine revelation to unlock the truth about the gospel, that is salvation from sin and death based on the potency of God alone, is a seminal thought in the field of epistemology. Paul's testimony is that this seminal knowledge about the gospel did not come through his senses or reason. It came by singular revelation from Christ himself. For the rest of us, we acquire this knowledge from Paul and those who were taught in his tradition. Now I want to talk just a moment about hermeneutics. Hermeneutics is the science of interpretation. And when interpreting any scripture, one must always consider whether the text is simply descriptive of an event or events, or if the text is intended to be prescriptive of a principle of scripture. Now to illustrate this distinction, consider Paul's experience with Christ on the road to Damascus recorded in Acts chapter 9. While on this journey, Paul was arrested. He was going to arrest followers of Christ. He was encountered Christ. He, in a sense, was arrested by Christ. Paul received the singular gospel by singular revelation through the direct mediation of Christ. At least I presume this is where it occurred, or at least it began to occur. Was this event then a descriptive event, or is it a prescriptive event? In other words, was this just a description of a singular event, or was it intended to provide a paradigm for how people encounter Christ? Now, one of the ways that we assess whether a text is, a, is descriptive or prescriptive is to use the principle scriptura a scriptura explicando est. Now, if you know Latin, you recognize immediately I just gave you a phrase in Latin that says scripture explains scripture. A corollary of this seminal principle is that clear texts explain unclear text. So, for example, consider the Apostles Paul teaching on the role of human mediation in the process of initial salvation. This is Romans chapter 10, verses 13 through 15. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him whom they've, not, whom they've not believed? And how will they believe on him whom they've not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they're sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach good news. Paul's teaching seems to be prescriptive regarding how people are introduced to Christ through the mediating work of other humans. Indeed, Paul was one of the greatest human purveyors of the gospel in history. Notwithstanding his own teaching on the point of human mediation and salvation, Paul was not brought to Christ by a human agent, but by a direct encounter with Christ. Since Paul's encounter with Christ in Acts 9 does not specify whether or not it is descriptive or prescriptive, it is the unclear text when compared to Romans chapter 10. Therefore, using the principle of comparing Scripture with Scripture, one concludes that Romans 10 is the prescriptive prescriptive on the point of human mediation as normative in the initial process of salvation, and Acts 9 is descriptive of a singular event of introducing Paul to Christ, which is an exception to the normative process. In other words, most people don't seem to have a direct personal encounter with Christ like Paul did, but Paul had it for a particular reason. That's why he needed it. Now, most of us who have come to Christ, and I'd say virtually all of us, have come to Christ by virtue of a human mediating the gospel to us, speaking the gospel to us, preaching the gospel to us. Therefore, in interpreting scripture, one must always ask whether or not 
the text is descriptive or prescriptive. And a, a key hermeneutical principle to help you is to is to ask look at the the stronger text compared to the weaker text and let the stronger text help you understand the weaker text. This way you can avoid some unorthodox interpretations of scripture. One more theological point before I do the application. Human approval and divine approval. Clearly Christians should want God's approval first and foremost. But what about the approval of man? On this point, consider a text like Luke chapter 2, verses 52, which said of Jesus that he increased in favor with both God and man. So the text actually says this in the New King James Version, and Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. Now the most obvious way to understand this text is that when mankind aligns with God's perspective, then human approval is good, because human approval is aligned with God's approval. But when mankind's standards diverge from God's, then human approval is not good. So certainly we should seek the approval of parents and teachers and managers and spiritual leaders, but this approval should be sought secondarily to divine approval. Therefore, the boundary of the human approval is always alignment with God's standards. I want, to, I want people to be approving of me if their standards are God's standards. When human approval is congruent with divine approval, human approval is acceptable and should be sought for. Now let's talk for a moment about some application. The inclination of mankind is always to regress and live in a state of fig leaves. That is a state of continual performance intended to in some way to make us acceptable with God. Clearly this is a lost cause. Living in this state has never worked and will never work. Nevertheless, humans continue to, in this state of insanity. And most of you know the pedestrian definition of insanity is doing the same thing but expecting different results. Well, that's the, the world we mostly live in. The true solution to the problem of mankind's fallen condition can never come from man. It can only come from God. And so it did through Christ. Furthermore, mankind could not think or invent God's solution. Only God could define it and communicate it. So the key to anyone responding to God properly is to receive the singular gospel that was given through the singular revelation to the Apostle Paul. Now given this reality, the only way for fallen mankind to live well in God's universe is to embrace the singular Pauline gospel. By so doing, mankind has not only the solution to the problem of sin and death, but also has the power to live wisely in God's universe. And to live wisely means to live efficiently, effectively, and efficaciously. Now, wise managers seek to build organizations with people who live wisely. Wise people display the fruit of the singular Pauline gospel, the gospel of the grace of Christ. They no longer live and work in the fig leaf state seeking to gain God's acceptance through their own potency. They don't serve their own ego. They don't work for money, power, or fame. They work with profound gratitude for the gift of eternal life given to them through the singular gospel that comes through the singular revelation. They obediently find and fulfill the call of God on their lives, including their workplace assignments. In every aspect of life, they live intentionally, seeking to discern and align their role in the meta narrative, because they believe, they believe firmly in the sovereign purpose of God in all of life 
they live always as unto the Lord with gratitude because they have been made acceptable with God through the substitutionary atonement of Christ. Consequently, their work product will be excellent because their Savior empowers them. Such workers excel and therefore enable organizations to deliver products and services on time and on scope and on budget. And the reason these workers excel is because they're doing what they have C4 to do. They're fulfilling the call of God on their lives, not only in the workplace, but in every area of life, at home, in their churches, their communities, in their personal life, and in their work life. They're committed to the will and ways of God in every area of life. And when you begin to populate an organization with people like this, you begin to build an incredible organization, an organization that will, will deliver on time, on scope, and on budget, or even better, will deliver early, that is before time, and will deliver beyond scope, and deliver under budget. That's even better. Some will call that under-promising and over-delivering. That's what C4 people do. That's what organizations populated by C4 do. people do. Organizations that deliver such value will build stellar reputations and be industry leaders. So may we have grace to build organizations like this. In Jesus' name, amen.